Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California. We're here each Wednesday at this time for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And yes, you're back at Health Matters. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again this lovely day. What a day it is. Wow, the weather's been so nice lately. I, I'm in love with it. I can say that for sure. Well, <clears throat> today we have a, a hopefully a, another fascinating program with a fascinating author. Um, our guest will be, our principal guest will be Colleen Morton Bush, who's written a book called Fire Monks, Zen Mind Meets Wildfire at the Gates of Tassajara. Um, in 19, or sorry, that in 2008, in June, there was a huge, huge, the third largest fire that ever that happened in California. Uh, part of that fire was in the Ventana Wilderness, Los Padres National Forest, and in the in one area of that uh, forest is a. For those who don't know Tassajara, it's a the Zen Mountain Retreat. Uh, it's two hours uh, east of Carmel. And it's a much a favorite place of mine, and uh, have a long and deep connection with it. And when I saw this book, even though it's not about health matters <laughs> in any organized sense, it's something of considerable interest to me. So I hope you'll bear with me. And but she writes this fascinating story about how it is that ultimately these five uh, monks uh, took it upon themselves to save their monastery. And so she'll be with us. We hope in about. Uh, eight minutes from now. And uh, until then, we've got a couple of announcements to do. And prior to her coming, I guess what I'll do is I'll be reading something from the book. But for our announcement period, I want to mention that today at uh, Sonoma Valley Hospital, the Rehabilitation Therapies area are offering a series of beginning the today, the first, of the, the first of free classes on active aging. And uh, for people who are in that situation, as most of us are, uh, and their families also are welcome to come. To, today's class is called Healthy Breathing and Exercise. Basically, it's an overview class. It's at 3 p.m. at the hospital's cafe. Um, the attendees will learn breathing techniques to help maintain an active lifestyle. The, ca the class will be t taught by Kathy Cole, respiratory therapist, and also Maureen uh, McGrain, the uh, nurse, will be there assisting. And so that's today. And other upcoming classes in... Um, on September 8th at 3 p.m., uh, students will learn how to manipulate muscle strength, flexibility, and endurance training. The physical therapist, uh, Julius Rivera, will be teaching that. The next class after that is in the 14th of September and so on. We'll be reading them about as it goes along. But for more information, you're welcome to call the Sonoma Valley Hospital at 935-5000 and speak to Don Kuhara who's a nurse in charge of this overall program, because I think there's a lot of people who 
could pick up little uh, tint, uh, hints on this various things on healthy aging. And, of course, it's a very popular topic these days. And um, it may sound a little silly if you're not at all, if you have none of the sort of incipient losses, uh, you're, not, you're, you're not remembering quite as well or you're not standing quite well. So for a lot of our listeners, probably some of that sort of seems like it's far off. But for our listeners who have any of those incipient signs, uh, it's a good idea to get familiar with some very simple steps because it can give you a sense of security that you can easily lose when you start to lose things, as we tend to do. So that's today, the first class, 3 p.m. at the cafe at Sonoma Valley Hospital here in Sonoma Valley. That's uh, on Andrew Street. For those who know who don't know, they can always look it up or can call them up. Um, now, upcoming uh, in kind of in the Buddhist vein, since we're, our principal guest is going to be talking about Buddhism a lot, uh, another lo- local Buddhist uh, organization called the Sonoma Shambhala Center is offering offering two level, they call it level one trainings this fall. The first level one training is called The Art of Being Human with Jesse Miller. That first begins uh, Friday evening, September the 16th at 7 p.m. and runs 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. There's a free public lecture that day, and then it goes on through the weekend, the 17th and the 18th. Uh, it's um, uh, There is some money involved for uh, full-time students and for just regular folks. Then there's the, um, let's see, then there's a second one that starts in October the 14th. It's the Friday night lecture, the free Friday night lecture. It will be then, and then there'll be a Saturday that goes with that one as well. So Shambhala training is a series of contemplative weekend workshops uh, suited for both beginning and experienced meditators or for the benefits of people, of people, to people, excuse me, with any spiritual tradition. The simple and profound techniques of mindfulness and awareness Mediation, meditation, excuse me, is the basis of the secular path. They put out secular. Uh, The Shambhala training workshops participants uh, study and practice Shambhala warriorship, a tradition of human bravery and leadership. The path shows how how the challenges of daily life are opportunities for both contemplative practice as well as social action. Um, at Shambhala Training Level 1, participants are introduced to basic goodness in the practice of meditation in a supportive social environment. The weekend includes talks by the director, group meditations practice, discussion, and individual meetings with meditation instructors. The Friday night is talks are free and open to the public. The registration fee will be due in full at the Friday's evening talks. Scholarships are available. No one will be turned away for lack of funds. To request a discounted fee, please c- contact Rachel Anderson at Satellite P. Excuse me, I'll spell it out. It's Satellite S A T E L L I T E P U B S one at Comcast.net at least five days before the Friday evening dates. Please refer to our generosity policy at this location. Sonoma Shambhala Center is located at 255 West Napa Street, right here in Sonoma. Parking is in the back. Enter from the parking lot. So this is a very interesting training um, 40 years ago almost. Not 40 years ago. Almost 40 years ago, I studied with the teacher of this Shambhala Center, a man named Chogyam Trimpa Rinpoche, who was a very profound teacher and a very elegant uh, Buddhist scholar. And this is <clears throat> now 
has gone on, and he actually spoke of the Shambhala work in his teaching then 40 years ago, and uh, this is what's come of it, and it's uh, very popular all, all over the country. And for anyone who's interested in mindfulness meditation who's been drawn in various venues, you hear about it quite a lot, actually. A lot, with, of course, in, in, in the health environment. Uh, here's our caller. So we'll take a break from that conversation. Welcome to Health Matters. Hi, this is Colleen Morton-Bush. Yes, it is. And, and welcome to Health Matters. Thanks uh, for taking some time to join us today. I can barely hear you. Let me try to turn up the volume on my phone here. That would be good. Can you talk again? I will talk. Okay, that's better. Oh, good. Well, <clears throat> I just we were just a, I had just finished up talking about a local Buddhist um, uh, teaching here in Sonoma. The Shambhala group has got a local center, and they they are having some upcoming trainings. And <clears throat> so, one of the things I wanted to try to do because we do have so many Buddhist practitioners in our area here, and of course, many people who are probably listening to this are. I'm not, I'm not sure many, but certainly several are people who've had uh, significant Buddhist training, and many of whom probably have been to Tassajara, or if not Tassajara, they've been to some of the Shambhala centers. So it's uh, we're. I hope you can feel that you're you're in familiar company. You might say. Uh huh. Okay. Right. And and Colleen, what I was hoping to do, and I should mention that Colleen was with us uh, several weeks ago. She did a presentation at. Uh, uh, our local readers' books, and uh, I got a chance to listen to her there and, and meet her briefly. And I had been so eager to have her join us on the show because, of course, she's telling an exciting story here for, for those of us who've loved Tassahara as long as I have. And it's it's my primary teacher is uh, Shizuki Roshi, mm-hmm. and so um, for me the the uh, the story is is is. I don't know how to speak of the sort of profundity when I, I'm sure well, I'll be, well, as we're talking, we'll be able to both share our sort of an individual feelings about the presence of being at Tassajara and the, the sort of specialness. But as I was reading, for instance, that the, the part of the, the meeting of the fire chapter, and I, my hand could touch the sides of the buildings you talked about and could feel the earth in the garden area and could relate to Colin in the shop and, mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, each each rock, and the, and, I, and I had taught uh, at. The, of course, I'd done my own training, or as I went as a teacher there, I did some training at the yurt uh, down beyond the baths there, right. and uh, so <laughs> all of those pieces were just like feeling spots for me. You know, yeah. in, in terms of uh, you know feeling the liveliness, shall we say, of the. But what I wanted to do, Colleen, and I, I was because for our listeners who may not be as acquainted as you and I are with the, sort of the basic situation of zen and and i was hoping you might be able to uh enlarge our purpose today and and to take some time with us and talk about your sort of initiation with zen at at the according to this book you've been at it for now a little over 10 years and Mm -hmm. and so you've been an editor at the yoga journal so you'd had some some background there as well and so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what drew you to buddhism and and tell us a little bit about your personal story Okay. Um, I think it was a very natural progression from what started as a long yoga practice and kind of led me to a desire to to sit sit down and meditate. And um, it just kind of ero- arose at a certain point in my practice, and at that point I found myself in the Bay Area where there were just, you know, many, many choices of where I might dip in. And I um, ended up 
sitting with um, Edward Brown, who's written a lot of the cookbooks that people know that are associated with Tassajara, the Tassajara cookbook and the Breads book. And um, that was my entry to Zen, and Ed was a very good entry to Zen because he has sort of a very personal and um, rather informal way of teaching. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which was very disarming. He's and, the essence of informal, right. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. and welcoming. And mm-hmm. um, so I sort of... And he also, at the time, was partnered with uh, Patricia Sullivan, who was a yoga teacher of mine, and they would teach these retreats together so I could go and do a lot of yoga and then get exposed to Zen. And that just sort of opened the door, and I found myself um, you know, going further and further along that path to the point where now I would say my Zen practice has eclipsed my, my yoga practice. Unfortunately, I'm a little stiffer than I used to be um, when I was doing a lot of yoga, but these days I'm mostly meditating or um, very active, doing you know outdoor physical things like cycling and backpacking. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yoga's become a little bit of a backseat. But I think it was just there was something that I wasn't getting at with my yoga practice, and I don't mean that to um, disparage yoga at right. all. I just mean that I sort of came to the end of uh, of my growth um, there and wanted some other way to access you know my mind and um, my habits of mind in particular and and just found myself very engaged by, by Zen practice because it's so spare and so simple. Um, and yet there are these forms, which I did eventually later get into. Um, I started sitting at the Berkeley Zen Center. Which, with, with Mel? Yeah, yeah, which is a lot closer to my home. Mel and, Weitzman, uh, who has also been a student of Suzuki Roshi. And, yes, that's yeah. right. In fact, a lot of people say that he sort of reminds them quite a lot of Suzuki Roshi. People who, who knew Suzuki Roshi often make that comment about Sojin. He's got a he's got a jolliness about him, and, yeah. and and at the same time, he's also very clear in, in you know that he's he's what he is. Yeah, yeah, he's an extraordinary teacher in a very humble mm-hmm. sort of way, which mm-hmm. really appealed to me. And the community that practices with him is a very dedicated community of, you know, what we call lay practitioners, also some priests, but a lot of people who just have, you know, they have jobs, they have families, and they're wedging their practice in where they can. And it's amazing actually how much they do how much time they find and what a commitment they make to their practice given all these other demands in their lives. So that's the context I found myself, mm-hmm. you know, practicing in as a very active community of lay practitioners. And you're, this is over in Ber- Berkeley, right? This in East, Berkeley, in, yeah. In East Bay. And you're, you're still in Berkeley, are you? I am. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I see. Okay. So for our listeners who might be going to, just for fun, they might be going to Berkeley, uh, talk, talk about the, the your Zen Center there and what access our, our listeners might uh, have if they wanted to go ex- experience it in some mm-hmm. way? Well, we have lots of p- things that are open to just anybody wandering in. Basically, there's there's a schedule that's, um, if you go to berkeleyzencenter.org, mm-hmm. the whole schedule would be up oh, there and good. available. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, in the morning and in the evening, generally, if we're not on break or in a particular, in an intensive or something, um, there's 5.40 a.m. and 5.40 p.m. meditations. And then on Saturday, there's a half-day program that's much more elaborate. It has meditation in the morning, and then there's a formal uh, Oriyoki breakfast, you know, where you eat out of three bowls wrapped in cloth, and it's a very um, highly formalized way of eating. It's like a, a ballet, a meal that is a ballet. <laughs> and, um, and then there's a lecture and a social period after that. And so actually a lot of people like to come on Saturday because it's a way to kind of meet people in the community. Right. Well, and and so for you who had been a practitioner of, of yoga, then so 
to transition from, or enlarge might even be a better word, for you to sort of enlarge from your yoga practice into a Zen practice is pretty easy to visualize, and, and, and for me anyway. And, yeah. and for, for those people who've never had a sense of practice, maybe you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on how that gets built and started and organized for people. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, you know, I used to, um, with, with yoga, it started with classes. And then I did eventually develop my own home practice, um, at which you know, a lot of people consider that essential. Uh-huh. Um, that you eventually have that as part of your, you know, that you're doing it at home as well as going to classes. And um, with Zen, you know, it kind of went the, it, I guess it went similarly in that I, I, I needed the, the guidance of, you know, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, sort of the question that was in my, well, what am I doing here? What, you know, somebody give me some guidance, which, you know, of course, uh, in Zen there actually was very little. You know, you just you sit down and um, there's some, formal ways in which you sit down, but mm-hmm. um, so to practice in a community, in particular like the Berkeley Zen Center, where there's a very um, highly established you know, community with a lot of very experienced practitioners, mm-hmm. was amazing because you could feel that experience and you could be guided by it, and you could also just simply watch other people when you didn't really know, well, what's happening now? You know, if there's a service, for example, and people mm-hmm. are bowing uh, or chanting, it's very easy to kind of fall in and, uh, and learn by observing, which mm-hmm. is really the Japanese, comes from the Japanese way of learning. That's how we, how we learn as children. <laughs> and it's, how we, it's, it's a great way to learn, actually, mm-hmm. right? Because you, you're kind of coming at it less from your mind, and you're coming at it more in a holistic way with your body and, and your mind together. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got a lot from sitting with people. And then, you know, I've noticed it's more challenging for me now to sit on my own. Um, I know it's important, and I do do it. Mm-hmm. But I so love um, going down to the Zendo and entering the Zendo and sitting down with other people. Um, there's something very uh, fortifying about that, and I do think it's a very important part of practice. I mean, if you live, you know, in the boondocks, there's nothing saying you can't have a very strong meditation practice. But community, you know, or sangha, right? It, it's a very important part of practice. And um, well, you put your finger right on it. As far as I'm concerned, I. I I, I even had the pleasure of talking to the friend that was here with you in Sonoma. Oh, yeah. And one of the things she said to me, I had mentioned to her that I was thinking about buying some property up in up in the mountains. She said, oh, just don't worry about it. You can come up. There's a song up there. <laughs> and she was right in the middle. You know, she just she gave me such encouragement. And I, I it, it was I, I was so touched by the fellowship of that. But also, as I as she was saying it, I was realizing the very thing you just said. There's that there's that wonderful sense of of. Doing it together, you yeah. know, and, and, and I guess one of the things I was looking for you to say, which you so conveniently did, was to talk exactly about that, how there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a purposefulness that, that comes from the, the practicing together. There's a purposefulness that comes that it's nonverbal. It's not about a bunch right. of rules. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, and it's, it's really magical. And, and of course, I, I suspect that certainly from reading some of your book, when you go to Tassajara, one of the things you get from going there is you get that wonderful sense of that just coursing through you all the time. Yeah, right, even when you aren't in the Zendo, because right. they're really practicing, you know, all the time. They're, exactly. They're never not practicing. I mean, really, none of us are, but, right. you know, they've in particular gone to a place where that's the commitment. And right. so you do, you do feel it, and it's very encouraging. Right. Uh, it's also challenging, which is part of it, too. You right. know, you want to have the the mirror that other people provide to you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of 
your own conduct and your own beliefs and your own assumptions get reflected back to you by other people in a very important way that can help you grow as well. So in a sense, you're talking about, or that is, we're talking about life unfolding in a mindfulness environment, really. Mm -hmm. And so that this, and again, one of our, for our listeners who aren't kind of like you and me, who aren't sort of dedicated Buddhist practitioners, um, there's a there's an incredible richness to that, completely independent of the Buddha element of it, right. and, and and I think that part of what I think your book talks about and and so um, uh, so effectively labors is the the way, for instance, you some of your characters in the fore part of the book, you know, sort of as as things begin to coalesce, as people sort of work together and talk together and struggle together to sort of confront this oncoming fire. And then, of course, as you get in, into the very belly of the beast, when the meeting of the fire chapter, and there, people there are on the ground, and we've so you've you've built this structure of connectivity, this 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 right. fellowship that then is then living alive in the five people that are the people who are, you know, uh, and so deeply involved and and uh, <laughs> doing the, but but interestingly enough, it's it's like. You know, uh, chopping vegetables, washing fruit. I mean, it, it's a it's a more exciting story, <laughs> and and yet it still is kind of like the same thing. Yeah, and, I really tried to to make that point, even though I, I realize it may be hard for some people to right. believe. You know, what do you mean? You know, how could a how could they really just have met this this huge natural force in the same way that they would have a, a very you know everyday task like chopping carrots? But, right. But they repeatedly said things like that to me, and I also observe it at Tassajara. Like, I'll right. just tell you a quick story about Please, it. no, yeah, jump in, yeah. <laughs> the summer, um, one of the summers when I was there doing the research, um, it was towards the end of the summer, I think it might have even been the day before the season ended, hmm. and some students went out um, hiking, and they, they neglected to tell anybody um, where they'd gone, and, and, which is a no-no, <laughs> right. and they hadn't returned. So at the work circle the following morning, um, there was an announcement about that, and there was an announcement that, you know, if you were available, would you please let so-and-so know, because they wanted to send out, you know, a search party. And it was all very, like, matter-of-fact and no excitement. And I actually noticed myself thinking, well, what's wrong with them? Why aren't they more, you know, excited and agitated? This is scary. (laughs) And then I realized, you know, they assembled the search party. They went out, and they looked for them, and eventually the students did return. They weren't actually found. They found their way back, but they had spent the night out. And later I thought, you know, this is just, this is is practice. You know, it's like not adding, excitement would not really have solved anything. (laughs) It would not have really added anything. Right. And it didn't mean they weren't concerned. They did the appropriate things that needed to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. they they went looking for them. But I, I just, for me, it was a real sort of, Oh yeah, that's right. What I'm writing about is real. <laughs> yeah. that it's true that you know you don't have to add anything extra. You know you don't have to um, embellish. Yeah. Yeah, and and over dramatize. You know you just do what you need to do, and that's really what they did throughout the fire as well. Well, and as I say, you just kind of again going back to the meeting fire chapter. Um, and by the way, I, I I had told you or I told your publisher somebody that there were going to be some breaks during our program, and I should have had a break about four minutes ago, but we're having some technical difficulties with our equipment <laughs> so we're just going to carry we're just going to soldier on okay. so so forgive me if i'm not giving you a little bit of a break or if you need to take a moment i'll i could turn some music on if need be but i, I no, i'm all right okay good because i i my machine isn't isn't giving me all that it needs to so um 
one, uh, and so I, I guess, uh, well, what comes to mind again, coming back to the the meeting, the, the meeting fire chapter, coming into the middle of that. One of the things that I touched was so touched by was as I was touching every practically every sentence as well as every page, but was how people kept coming back to the center of the, and for those of us who've had the privilege of being there. The place, you know, the the meeting place or the work party meeting place, like you have a picture of it in the oh, book. Oh, the work actually. circle. Yeah, the yeah. work circle place. Well, yeah. and and how you referenced how people would, you know, they'd keep coming back to the center. They'd keep coming back. Of course, and it makes makes sense. But the, but the but when you tell the story in the in the extremis of the fire itself, again, it's 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 almost like zazen you're you're coming back to the center you're doing what you need to do there then you go out and do what you need to do and then you come back to the center again that's right so you know they were all actually um connected the whole time even though they actually didn't spend you know they spent little chunks of time together but really they kind of dissipated around tasahara because that was really the only way they were going to cover it in any extensive way and actually that wasn't the really this by the book safest thing to do really you want to have you know a partner right. but they were connected by radios the whole time and they would help each other out when they needed to and and so you know for them they never actually felt they weren't connected and actually in the moment when they decided to separate and go off into their own areas like for example the head of the shop went to the shop right they didn't actually talk about it they they just did it. You know, yeah, they just did it. Well, that, really... that's that's what jumped out at me too. Was exactly what you just said. I thought to myself, I, and you say it in a bunch of different ways, but you know, there wasn't a command structure, right? And there, people kind of did what they did, right? And yet, it wasn't chaos at all. Um, right. And it also isn't that there wasn't any authority because the abbot was down there with them, and right. he sort of he did occupy a position of sort of. Authority isn't really the right word, but, you know, um, I mean it in its broadest, biggest sense. He's a leader, though. Yeah. Yeah, and he was, throughout, I'm sure he was treated as a leader. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and he did. I mean, he, he was he was the one who made the the decision, which was then changed again when they, when they decided to follow the advice of the firefighter that was on the ground with them that was saying everyone needs to leave. Right. It was the abbot that, that said, well, okay, eventually. Mm. And they left, and then, you know, of course, five of them end up coming back, which is the five that are there during the fire. Which is, let's, let's tell that story a little bit. Let's, let's kind of step back a little bit, not go too far back, cause, but maybe just a little before everybody got in the trucks at the bottom of the hill there and started <laughs> up that long, yeah. uh, uh, that long troubling road. Um, <laughs> so start us there at the, at the bottom of the hill. People have, they finally made the decision they have to go, they have to leave. And tell us a little bit about that part of the story and then, you know, take us up the hill a ways and talk about all of that, if you would. Well, they, um, so they, they, they received this advice, which was surprising to them, uh, kind of at the last minute that they all needed to leave because they, um, had never planned to leave. They'd always planned to have at least, you know, some people down there um, servicing, keeping the pumps fueled and keeping them going. And, and we should maybe step back a little bit and tell our listeners that there had been, this is a, this is a fire-prone area. Yeah. There had been serious fires there um, in 49 and 77 and, and 99. Right. I mean, and so, and, and, and in, my, in my tenure of being there, when I was there actively more than I am t- currently, I mean, I'd I've been there pre and post fires. Pre, so it was just it was. This is not an unfamiliar uh, phenomenon. No, and they have a fire crew all the time. You exactly. know, basically yeah. all year round. In, in the summer, they train the new students and you know give them jobs on the crew, either on the hose crew, or, you know, or the pump crew. And so they take this seriously, you know. But 
this was obviously a, an event bigger than they're used to training for. So they did have a lot of help from you know professional firefighters coming down and giving them advice and right. trainings and things. Right. And one of these firefighters down there with them is the one that said, you know, well, gee, we got to get out. And right. they resisted, but they did um, come to a, you know a decision that they would they would take his advice. And so they're they're they headed up the road, but that you know didn't feel like the right thing to a handful of people. Um, not only because they had never intended to do that, um, but because they felt like they could really stay there safely. And so just, you know, their whole, you can imagine that feeling. I mean, we've all had that feeling of kind of going ahead with something that we're kind of torn about or we, we're oh, not. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We, putting one foot forward and yet we're feeling like we're being tugged back. That's, right. that's right. the feeling they had. And so they're, they're driving up this road, which is, you know, as you know, very dramatic, you know, uphill climb. And you have to know, you have to know if the place is undetended, it's going to burn down. Well, right. They, I mean, it's they, pretty, they, almost, it's almost a fait accompli. I mean, it, you, you, you just, it, you, I mean, those of us who've been there and see the steepness of the valley and see the vegetation that goes right down to the, there's a street, there's a, a creek there, you know, but nothing like that, any kind of protection other than, unless, and we'll, and we'll talk a little bit about Dharma rain and the wonderful idea that represented, yeah. you know, but so, so uh, these people who, now we should even step back a little bit. There, there had been the, the, the summiter visitors, they'd kind of gotten out early. Then there'd yes. been a core group. That it stayed on and stayed on and stayed on, and then, and then I think there was like fourteen. I think you said in, in the book, and then and then it, and then those are the ones that went up the hill. But there's been several steps along the way where different levels of people had chosen to leave and had been advised to leave, and so right. on. Right? Yeah, some had chosen, and right. some had been, you know, basically requ- had, had been told they needed to leave right. because they they needed to have like, and there, and there was a constant um, debate about what was the right number, but right. they knew they needed to have some people there because, as you say. You know, if they if they left, I mean, it just they just wouldn't think about leaving Tassajara unattended. It, it has never really been unattended, except for maybe like one night during the 1977 fire, and then they promptly, some of them promptly snuck back in, you know, <laughs> right, to do right. some to do some fire protection. So let's let's talk about. Well, I'm jumping. I'm forgive me for jumping in here, but it, it's it's it. it the the five maybe 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 I'm jumping ahead because I'll let you tell the story. I'm sorry, I was because I was thinking of how did they arrive at five, but we're going to get to that. So oh, well, I can tell you that. I mean, yeah. so they're driving up the road. There's actually about 22 people then because right. there there are some people on the ground who have been volunteering with them. So it's right. around 22. Not right. all of them are residents, but most of them are. Right. And they get up the road to this place where it's it's basically the last place you can see Tassahara on the road before you go around the bend, right. and it's the first place you see it when you're driving in, and it's nicknamed Ash's Corner because mm-hmm. some people and ashes have been scattered near that spot, uh, people and pets' ashes. And so standing there is a firefighter that they've had some communications with, and he's come down to Tassahara, he's checked out the place, and they, they feel some sort of connection to him. And he reveals, they get out of their cars, even though he's you know, kind of encouraging them to keep on driving out, and he reveals to them that if they go past him, he's not going to be able to let them go back in. And this kind of gives them pause because they sort of thought they'd, you know, they'd get out now and then they'd be able to go back in and check on the pumps and take care of things. But somehow having this firefighter laying it out like that for them and reminding them or letting them know definitively, I can't let you come back in if you leave now. And just think how imp- what an important piece of information that is. I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, even if they kind of maybe knew it in the back of their heads, you know, for him to put it out there, a lot of them felt like, you know, he's giving us a, he's opening a door. You know, one of the monks who ended up staying confided to me, you know, I probably heard what I wanted to hear, you know, in that moment, as we all do in any moment, 
we're not watching ourselves and how we think, you know, but I heard, you know, maybe we can go back. And um, he wasn't the only one. And so they ended up kind of having a conversation. And it's a very um, chaotic moment because the firefighters are really trying to get them to keep moving and they're giving, there's a real sense of urgency. But the residents are like, wait a minute, let's stop, let's think this through, let's talk. And so there's a sort of conflicting... Um, and I think for our listeners who may not be familiar with the, the sort of collective that Tassahara really is, this is a this kind of dialogue, a meeting of minds, people sitting with each other and talking things through. This is very much an elaborated process in this environment. So this to, to, to pause and to think together is a normal thing for them to do. Yeah, decisions, I mean, are generally, you know, consensus is encouraged and valued. Um, that doesn't mean that their decisions are not, like, actually made by people like the abbot or, the, say, the president of the board or, you know. But, um, and Steve basically did make his decision first. That's the abbot, one of the abbots of San Francisco Zen Center that owns Tassahara, and to, to decide to go back. And then what happened is huddled around him were several people who, had been part of this core team that you mentioned right. um, that had been basically they were sort of the decision making body of Tassahara during the fire. Um, they were the ones who were gathering all the information so they'd already it. they'd already coalesced their minds together to to be a core already yes, but right, in right. separate vehicles they'd been coalescing their minds together <laughs> well yes they <laughs> right they were right. a core team but Going up the road, they were in separate vehicles, and they were all having the same sort of running conversation, either with another person in the car or in their own minds, of mm-hmm. this doesn't feel right, this doesn't feel right, we have to get back. Mm-hmm. So on the road, they actually met, and they did have that conversation, and five people, um, including the abbot, decided that they wanted to turn around at that point, no, not go past the point where they couldn't come back, and go back down to Tassahara. And... There was one member of the core team who had already continued on past the firefighter, so he was out of the loop. He was, unfortunately, he couldn't be part of that process. And then there was another um, member of the core team, team who was actually the, the, the student fire marshal at Tassahara, who he looked at the situation and he felt that the best decision was to, was to follow the firefighter's advice and to leave. So that was the decision that, that he made, which I actually think was an equally diff- difficult decision. I mean, imagine you're standing there with your your dear friends and your community members, and oh, they're all saying, oh. I'm going back, and you say, what not an, me. Yeah, what an incredible uh, feeling that must have been in that moment. Yeah, I think it was. It was, it was, it was very profound and, and not without its painful aspects. Oh, I can imagine. And we're talking with Colleen Morton-Bush. She's written a book called Fire Monks, Zen Mind Meets Wildfire at the Gates of Tassahara, just for our listeners. And also, there's more information on your website at firemonks.com, is it? or It's actually, there's a hyphen in there, fire-monks.com. Okay, good. Well, so just just keep, for our listeners who weren't, weren't part of the whole program, I wanted mm-hmm. catch, get to get a little catch-up for them, our new listeners. Um, so there we are. We're standing up there at Ash's uh, Corner there, and, and we're looking down, and these five people, they lingered. Did you... They linger five minutes, uh, yeah, half an hour. Yeah, the mean, whole thing was, you know, maybe five to ten minutes. Uh-huh. Right, and so they were they they and you and of course I we hadn't talked really much about how you'd picked up on this idea you and and you'd you know just completely been taken by the idea of being able to tell this story. I mean, you weren't there at the fire, you weren't part of this crew, right? So you're coming in afterward and and having these deep interviews with these people. Uh, 
over right. a, a couple of years' time, I gather. Yeah. And um, and yeah. and so and and of course, you being a member of the tribe, or at least a you know a, a part-time member of the tribe, anyway, um, uh, they I'm sure people opened up to you, and and I imagine they really told you what they had to tell. I mean. Yeah, I think you know it was definitely. Um, to my to to the benefit of this process that that I had you know been going to Tassajara for a long time and had right. established relationships with people, but the people that I was writing about were actually you know I didn't know them that well, so mm-hmm. which I think was better because uh, you know I came to them fresh and they came to me fresh. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, because I I got the feeling, even though one reviewer kind of criticized you that you used in the book their first names and you used the last names of mm-hmm. other people, and they said, well, that's sort of. You were too close. You weren't keeping critical distance. But, but I, as when I listened to you, particularly when I listened to your readers, I got the, I really thought you, you, you held everybody in a place where you could have a critical distance from them, and and that you were even though maybe you were first naming them, I got the distinct thing that you, this was not these weren't your closest best buddies, but these were people you were intimate with. But right. Well, thank you. I did. I did. Um, I do feel, at least, it was my my intention and my own sense of it is that I did um, was able to hold both the need for critical distance and the need for intimacy, right? Um, in order to get inside their minds and their experiences in the way that I wanted to. And the reason that they were first named this was actually a decision that my editor and I made together. Uh-huh. Was there's so many people in this book, and we didn't want a reader to feel overwhelmed with you know who do I have to keep track of here? Right. So we made sort of a naming, we established a naming convention. So oh, I see. People uh, who I you see. get to know and whose experiences you get to track mm-hmm. received, you know, first name, um, uh, you know, referral. Right. And then other people were last name. And this wasn't without, you know, there were some people in the community that were uncomfortable with that. And, um, you know, and then, of course, you mentioned a, a reviewer who picked on up and picked up on it and didn't, you know, it negatively, right. but you know, it was a choice we made to try to actually assist the reader in knowing who do I need to keep track of here. Because um, I know when I'm reading books with huge cast of characters, it's it's difficult, you know, to sort of know. Well, is this a person I need to, you know, watch here? Well, I, actually, as I was reading it, I was grateful. I mean, I, I went, so when I read the the reviewer made that comment, I went, well, I. I, I saw what he was trying, or he or she, what they were trying to say, but I didn't feel that when I read, and also I didn't feel it when I heard you telling the story. So I, I, I thought it was an unjust, <laughs> an unjust complaint. Uh-huh. But, 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 but that said, okay, there we are at Ash's Corner. Let's let's keep going from there. Okay, Ash's Corner. So you know they make this decision that um, five five of them are going to turn around and go back, and um, it's a difficult. Um, moment because that means that many of the people there are going to continue on to, to, to Jamesburg, which is the sort of outpost for Tassajara at the end of the dirt road. Right. And um, so they quickly say their goodbyes and they turn around and they go back down to Tassajara. And there's another 18 hours that pass before the, um, the fire will actually arrive at Tassajara. And when it does, you know, so they, they, they busy themselves for that time. And the ironic thing is they get back and they realize Wow, five really isn't very many. <laughs> right, right. Maybe we need more. That's that occurred to me also. I went, God, a five. How did? Of course, those were the one who volunteered. But like I, you know, right. Yeah. And the thing is, there were people that um, that were on their on the road there that could have gone back with them and would have. There were a few people who expressed interest, but um, I think you know the abbot in particular was was very careful about you know making sure that everyone that he you know, quote-unquote, allowed to go back in with them or that, you know, he brought into this decision of going back, 
that they had kind of the same amount of information about what they were getting into. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was sort of trying to not. Um, I mean, those people that went back with him, they're all priests. Right. They're all longtime students, long-term residents of Tassajara. He, he knew them very well. He he could count on their behavior. Right. Um, and that was in a you know in a moment like that. I mean, I've spoken with. Um, I mean, for a firefighter, of course, that's completely natural because, you know, if they would just get an order, you're going or you're not, right. you know, no debating it. And for uh, someone, actually in 1977, uh, someone who was the, the fire marshal then at Tassajara actually did have firefighting experience, and he and I talked a lot about this, and he said, you know, you just, in a crisis like that, you know, you just need a decision. Right. <laughs> you can't actually have, you know, um, a circle and a long discussion, and, and right. he recognized the importance in that moment for Abbott to make the decision like he did. No, just these five. And but when they got back, the reality <laughs> of how they were going to implement, you know, well, themselves around really? Tassajara, how they were going to protect it with such a small number. It's so plain. It's so plain to me who who knows the ground intimately. I mean, it, five is just a, just an infinite, almost an infinitesimal number. You, yeah. And and, and and yet when you when you read what you've written, and you read as. The, the the various people move through their different paces, and you see, at least the way you tell the story. Of course, I wasn't there, but they did it. I mean, they 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 moved around in the way they needed to move around. They 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 you got into their heads enough so that as they were making decisions, you were there writing from within their head almost. You could say, or sort of semi in and out of their head. I don't know how to say that, but <laughs> I mean, you know, you captured the, the, their thinking process. What I was trying to say, you you at least you gave an attempt to do that, and so you. And again, for those of us who know the buildings and you know you know watch the you know the the bathroom down by the pool be burning. I mean, you know, I mean, we we know that's that, you know, and all the decisions about the compost pile. Well, that building needed to be replaced anyway. Maybe we shouldn't save it. But then, but when maybe we should save it. You know, <laughs> all, yeah, all those back and forths. Um, and yet here, these individuals are literally able to take this considerably large property. I mean, it's I don't remember. You probably know in your head better than I do the number of sort of feet it is from one end to the other. Uh, yeah, I don't actually know, but it can take about 15 minutes from walk, you know, to walk from one end to the other. Right. I should know that number, but I don't. But I know that if you briskly walk from one end to the other, it's about 15 minutes. Well, and so that gives our listeners a, 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 a sense of yeah. how 15 minutes is a good long stretch of space. Yeah. You know, and there's buildings and lots of things and different levels of buildings and so on. So let's, let's we've just, we're, let's see, we're at 143, so we've got, I, I kind of wanted to Let's see, I, I wanted to hear a little bit, a little bit more of the sort of the Zen of the experience as well, uh, of the and and so maybe put if you could put yourself, Colleen, in the either in your voice or the voice of one of these five people or all of them, and what they said to you about the you know the sayings of Buddhas or the Buddha teaching or the sutras or what of the teaching. Can enable them in your in, as, as you write about so convincingly and and what what about the teaching held their attention helped them held their attention what what little sayings from Dogen Zenji or from whoever uh, brought them k- k- enabled them to as, as you say face the fire because of course for many of our listeners who haven't had a chance to face a fire this is a supremely disturbing potential and and the way you tell the story. These people were able to meet that challenge, right? Well, of course, there's so many different things I could talk about, and I I tried really in the book to to just interlace them. You know, the threads throughout the book of 
Right. You know, how Zen practice was informing really everything. Right. Um, but, you know, I've heard um, David Zimmerman talk a lot. David Zimmerman was the director of Tassahara, and he's one of the five people who returned. And he was really the key, my key interview subject. I spent the most time with him and um, uh-huh. okay. got to know him the most, and I think he's really one of the most primary characters in, in the book as a result of that. And he's talked a lot about... You know, because people want to know about fear, and they, they, whenever I've done events with him, sometimes he's, he's been able to come with me to a few of the readings Wonder, I wonderful. did. Wonderful. People would always want to know, you know, what was going through his mind. How did you handle the fear? Right. You know, yeah, here, you're a, you're, you're a Zen student, you know, you're used to wearing robes and sitting in the Zendo and, you know, um, studying sutras and, you know, maybe doing some work, too, but not, you know, facing wildfire. And David in particular is kind of a, you know, he's not the kind of guy, you know, he, I say something in the book about how he looks like he'd be comfortable, you know, browsing a museum or going to the theater. You know, he's kind of an urban creature, which is funny since he lived at Tassahara for so long. <laughs> this is very, very rural, but he Well, but it's about, a pretty refined, it's a pretty refined kind of place, though, so it's, it's he, you can maintain your urbanity uh, and, and be at Tassahara, but anyway. I, I guess, yeah. yeah, yeah well, yeah. he, so he talks a lot about... Um, you know, just that fear is really about the future, and mm-hmm. it's it's an interesting way of thinking about it. That when we're when we're afraid, we're either we're either caught up in you know what's going to happen to me next. You know, we're we're anticipating something that's going to happen in the future that isn't happening at this exact moment, or we're self-protecting. Both of which, you know, then teaches us to to work on you know <clears throat> letting go of of fortifying the self, and really just paying attention to what's actually right in front of you right now, not worrying about what's, what's the next thing. So for him, you know, he did have moments, and he talks about them, when, you know, what was visually in front of him was quite impressive. You know, um, the night before the fire actually came in, the sky was, was, you know, looking like a volcano is how one of them described it. And then, of course, when it did come in during the daytime, maybe a little um, less dramatically in terms of the contrast between the night sky and the flames, but it came in on all three sides at one time, which was not at all what they'd been expecting. The firefighters had been saying it would probably creep in from one side. So it's these moments when he's faced with this, like, you know, bigger than he expected or something he's never encountered before in the form of a wildfire, you know, there might have been a moment of, oh, you know, <laughs> and, a, and uh, you know, a knot in the stomach and um, the feeling and the taste of fear, but then he wouldn't stay with it. He would let go of that, allow that to, to move through him, and then he would do something, you know. Um, and even if that meant, and at one point he wondered whether it did mean going into their stone office building, which was their, they identified it as their safe haven, and waiting out the fire, or whether it meant he could go and get a fire extinguisher or get a fire hose and put out flames that were getting close to a building or had already touched a building. So, you know, he really just that... The essence of, I mean, it was the fire was an incredible teacher of, you know, the need to not go running off with, you know, our fancies about the future, mm-hmm. um, and just stay exactly right where you are. And right where he was was okay. There's the flame. I have a hose in my hand. I can put some water on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, I think taken. You can take that as a metaphor really into your life. You know, one thing I talk about a lot in the book is the Buddhist teaching that all is a flame. Everything is on fire. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. I didn't want to just write a book about a wildfire. I wanted to write about fire, you know, as a teacher, fire as a metaphor for, for the difficult 
and the unknown, the uncertain um, that we all face in our lives. You know, so those emotional fires and fires of illness and fires of job loss and divorce. And um, I mean, we all, we're all really fire monks in our own lives, or we can be if we, if we turn and meet whatever difficulty is coming, you know, with a calm, open heart and mind. Well, uh, that's what made me so grateful to read the Kirkus Review, which if I could just say a couple words from that, it says in the second or third paragraph, it says, her main purpose, though, is to explore how the discipline of Zen uniquely prepared otherwise untrained monks to face the crisis. Herself a Zen student, the author explains how Zen practice teaches followers to live in flux, to recognize impermanence and deal with uncertainty. Novice firefighters, the monks, were veterans at practicing calm and taking care of honoring simultaneously interdependence and individual individual authority. They smoothly turned toward the fire, not to confront it or fight it, but rather to meet it, to make friends with it as a blaze lapped over their perimeter. So well said. Thank you for that author who, or whoever wrote those lines. I, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> yeah I mean, it is really, really a great, um, that's a, a great review. That's a wonderful, wonderful review because it really it, it lets you dip into the real meaning of what I think you write about, and 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 it's uh, so I'm, I'm I'm sure you're you were anybody author would be grateful for such a, a thoughtful a thoughtful review. Yes, exactly. And that that line about um, novices in fire, you know, it, it, it's he's spinning off of or she whoever wrote the review right. of a line in the book. Um, you know, they were novices in fire, but they were experts in readiness. Right. And I find myself talking about that a lot when I talk about the book because it's, it seems rather simple, but it's such a it's such a profound thing to actually be ready. And what does that mean? You know, it, you don't know what's coming, but basically, you know, to be open to whatever's actually coming and to be, um, you know, willing to respond to it and see it for what it actually is. That that's something that I was trying to get at. Um, in the telling of the story as well. And this is exactly why I was so eager to have you on our show today, because I wanted, in your voice, with the, the, the poignancy of this very vigorous story that you have to tell, you are kind of an ideal person, in a way, for this moment anyway, to to, to give evidence to that form of teaching, which, in fact, is so important, exactly as you say, for us in our everyday life, mm-hmm. and so that we don't have to have a forest fire to need the attention and to need the training, to need the gift of the kind of teaching that uh, that 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 you are experiencing in your life, and 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 I have fortunately at different times. And and for our listeners who may or may not may not, may have not thought of themselves as being, should we say, candidates for a a kind of you know, uh, as Fritz Perls used to talk about, Fritz Perls, a famous psychologist, talk about neither, I can't use the word on air, uh, but n- n- navel-gazing, my father used to call it, when he criticized me uh, <laughs> when, I, when I started going to the Zen Center. And, and then it was funny because 20 years later, he sent me an article written by Jack Cornfield, the, um, yeah. the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Spirit Rock fellow, it, 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 Jack had been a, a Dartmouth graduate, as as said by my father, and and he said, "Well, gee, maybe there's something to that stuff, you know, because <laughs> Jack had published an article in the alumni magazine, and it was, and, but anyway, it was just, but yeah. So so we've got just a couple more minutes, and and again, we're talking to Colleen uh, Bush, Morton Bush, the author of Fire Monks: The Zen Mind Meets Wildfire at the Gates of Tassajara. 
maybe you you you've you've been talking about this a great deal, and you've been I guess all over the country uh, talking about this book. Uh, uh, are you still active in in it now, or, or have you kind of slowed down a little bit? Um, it's starting to slow down slightly. Um, I, mostly, they they kept me on the West Coast because oh, uh-huh. fire, you know, wildfire is definitely a West Coast you know oh, preoccupation. Even course, though you know you watch the news, um, it, it creeps east. You know, <laughs> it's it's not limited to the West. But right. they knew that there would be an interest um, in the West on this topic, and also mm-hmm. there's you know such a strong Buddhist. Um, Right. you know, um, practitioner community in the West. And so mostly it's been there. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, actually, also, I'm I'm headed down to Tassajara myself oh, in wonderful. about a month for, um, for a practice period. A practice period. Oh, so good for you. things are kind of, you know, um, quieting down now. Tidy, and tidying then I'll up. Find, yeah. I'll find myself facing my own um, fires <laughs> fairly shortly <laughs> right. inside Tassajara wearing, wearing robes. And, um, yeah, lucky and, girl. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, and then girl. and then come back out, um, you know, and then there's a paperback coming out in, in June of next year. So oh, oh, good. Okay. There'll be another round. Of, well, of course, um, there'll be lots of people who come to Tassajara will be able to, to, you know, just get copies there, but their copies are everywhere. I mean, you you go online. This is this is a widely distributed book, is, is, is my impression, at least. You can, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think what you were mentioning with your, with your father, the story about your father, you know, made right. me think of, I mean, from the very beginning, I did not want this to be a book that only a Buddhist would pick up. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to write a book that would, you know, be appealing and interesting and compelling to someone who knew nothing about Zen. Right. And that also would be satisfying and feel, you know, feel authentic to someone who does have a practice. So in some ways I set myself up for, you know, a crazy task because that's trying to satisfy everybody. But I really did want you know, in the same sort of way that Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I read that book all the time. Me too, yeah. And I'm sh- I know, you know, my 82-year-old teacher reads it all the time and, right. and tells me to read it. Um, right. And then someone who's never come to Zen before, often that's the first book that they'll pick up. So mm-hmm. I was aiming for the same kind of just broadness. Broad, broad readership. Well, my, yeah. you, I, th- I think you've accomplished it. And I, I certainly didn't mean to suggest that this was a limited of limited interest to, to Buddhist practitioners who hang out at Tassajara. That was not my... No, no was, you don't suggest it, but I think yeah. people, you right. know, if the word Zen, and they don't consider themselves Zen, that nope. there, there can be some, well, that wouldn't be for me. No, but what this is, ladies and gentlemen, is an adventure story. And it's, right. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and, and you, you very vigorously, to my reader's eye, create a, a tension of adventure. Yeah. And, and that tension and adventure is not, you know, living at the feet of the Buddha. No, <laughs> you know, it, it's it living in the living in the the sweat and the decisions and choices of ordinary everyday people in an yes. in an extreme situation. After all, this is the third largest conflagration and fire in the state of California's history. Right. And um, and so, for speaking for myself as a former firefighter for uh, Forest Hill, the U.S. Forest Service. I mean, I've, so I've, I've both had a Tassajara connection, but I've also been a firefighter. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, I do, you know, I, I, not that I have any great deep experience, but I literally have been a, you know, a paid member of the fire crew yeah. uh, in a national forest. And so I'm, I'm, should we say, at least familiar with the topic. Yeah. And, and um, uh, one, just one summer, I mean, I didn't make a life, unlike people like Gary Snyder or other people, I didn't make a, a lifestyle of it. But um, uh, at any rate, it, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, I got a little sign on my thing. It says, time to make room to wrap up. Oh. <laughs> my, my little, my little thing on my computer says, well, 
Anyway, Colleen, uh, I'm so grateful you took the time to, to, to be with us, and I'm, I'm certainly uh, I'm wishing this book does uh, not only well for you, but it, it does the job that I enjoy it doing, which is showing how what humans can do, and, and, and showing that humans giving their attention and their and their minds to to an important task uh, can can live on the edge of the exist on the edge of life and death, really. And and face up to it, and, mm-hmm. and that's a big challenge for us in this in this world is to li- live on that edge. And and uh, thanks for telling your story as you did. That's right. Well, thank you for thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking to you. Great. Well, Colleen, best of luck to you. Thanks. Okay. okay. Be well now. Bye bye. So there we go with that. That's our guest, and it is a wonderful book, ladies and gentlemen. In case you had any doubt about that. Um, Let's see. What do we have to do in two more minutes? Uh, I hardly have any time at all. I can hardly tell you that if you cannot pacify your spirit, you let your mind be complicated with desires and worries, your disease will not be cured. But to be healthy, you must avoid anger and worry. Keep your mind happy, your heart at ease, and your desires at low levels. That's the basic guidance of the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. That's the basic book of Chinese medicine. Our Health Matters motto still is... Our um, health care isn't a noun, it's a verb. Tune us in again next week. Until then, I bid you well.